Welcome back to the program. Like almost everything else in our globalized world, education is now competitive. It's long past the time when American kids could stand on the ramparts and look down at the rest of the world. Even some of our most prestigious and wealthiest communities can't compete with the average kids in places like Korea or Finland or Poland. As is normal when we are under attack, our knee-jerk reaction is to come up with excuses. We are more diverse. We're larger. We focus on different things and different values. The problem is they're excuses. When the pencils are down, we fail. We fall far, far behind. But why? We often ask, what are we doing wrong? But instead, my guest, esteemed journalist Amanda Ripley, asks and explores what others are doing right. That's the core of her book, The Smartest Kids in the World. Amanda Ripley spent a year following American teenagers living in Finland, South Korea, and Poland. Her stories reveal startling transformations, where kids got smarter not by spending more money or creating more tests. These are real kids in real situations, not like Lake Wobegon, where all the kids are above average. Amanda Ripley is a contributor to Time Magazine in the Atlantic and an Emerson Fellow at the New American Foundation, and it is my pleasure to welcome her here to talk about her book, The Smartest Kids in the World. Amanda Ripley, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about the methodology, about how this project came together and the idea of really focusing on kids and how they would experience these different systems around the world. I kept hearing about these countries that we all hear about in the news, Finland, Korea, Singapore, places that allegedly were educating virtually all their kids to high levels in math, reading, and science. And, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at the data. It is fascinating and getting more so every year comparing different countries. But I couldn't quite believe it. You know, I, I wanted to know what is it like to be a kid in these places. And I wanted to see it to the degree that's possible through the eyes of students. So luckily there are about 30,000 teenagers who every year essentially trade places, either coming to the United States to study abroad for a year, living with a host family, going to public school, or going from the United States and living abroad. So I tracked down three students who were headed off to countries with very compelling education stories for various reasons and followed them throughout their adventures and visited them in both um, their hometowns in the U.S. and then abroad. And, you know, it was incredibly helpful to have their on-the-ground input. You know, they introduced me to other kids, to parents, to teachers, but they also had this narrow but profound way to compare what they were seeing in a rural town in Finland compared to what they knew in their rural town back home in Oklahoma. And one of the things that is so remarkable is the degree to which the contrasts really are stark. In many ways, it's easy to think, well, high school is high school. But the contrasts were, were pretty dramatic, even between a rural town in Oklahoma, where Kim went to school, and a rural town in Finland. And one of the things that becomes apparent, I suppose, bef almost before anything else, is the motivation of the kids there. Talk a little about that. One of the things that all three American kids that I followed noticed, even though they were from very different states going to very different countries, was how much kids seemed to care about school in these countries. Now, the kids themselves, it's important to note, were not radically different. I mean, they were not intellectual heavyweights mm -hmm. <laughs> necessarily. They were, they were just like kids in America. You know, they spent too much time on Facebook and playing video games, and they complained about some of their teachers and their homework. Uh, there weren't huge differences in that sense. But 
the kids did notice, the American teenagers did notice that the their peers in these countries seem to seem to buy into school in a way that they weren't, even in their honors classes back in the U.S. in some cases. So this was perplexing, particularly to Kim, who was a 16-year-old who went from Oklahoma to Finland, to the point where she couldn't quite figure it out. I mean, she noticed that even even the kid who seemed to come into class stoned each day, as far as she could tell, <laughs> he seemed to... Uh, he seemed to be doing his homework, you know. He seemed to be kind of taking it vaguely seriously, and she couldn't she couldn't figure out why. I mean, the question is, why were they taking it seriously? So she finally asked two Finnish girls one day during a break in the in class, and they had a hard time processing the question uh, at first. But then one of the girls just said very simply, "Well, of course we care. It's school. How else are we going to get to college and get a good job?" And so then Kim started to wonder, "Well." That's true, and so that's true in America. So why did my peers in America not care? That Maybe that is the interesting question. And one of the answers to that question seems to be that in Finland, in South Korea, in Poland, the places you look at, there is a greater sense, a greater feeling on the part of the kids and their parents that social mobility is possible, a feeling that we once had here in America, but that seems to be the defining difference. It's interesting, yeah, social mobility is possible, but also that social mobility happens through education. I think through through mastering rigorous, challenging academic content. I mean that that piece of it is important. I mean I think here in America we, we believe deeply in social mobility. We are having some trouble with it uh, these days as are many countries, but you know, we believe in the concept. It's just I'm not sure we believe that you have to you have to be great at math to get it. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of a lag happening, and, and it's not just in the U.S., but many countries around the world, between the demands of a modern economy for skills, for higher-order thinking skills, the ability to learn, the ability to make an argument, the ability to be fluent in math. Those skills, uh, there's, there's a real change in what kids need to know, but I'm not sure it's quite trickled down into what kids and parents think they need to know, if you know what I mean. Right. I want to talk a little bit about some of the excuses that we hear all the time, that you know, someplace like Finland is certainly more homogeneous, that they don't have some of the poverty issues we have, some of the other issues that we face as a large, complex, diverse country. You talk about the fact that even if we start breaking it down and comparing some of these countries to individual states, we still fall woefully behind. You know, it's interesting. It is. People say to me often, "Oh, it's absurd to compare America to Finland," and that is true. I totally, I totally agree. Uh, but I think if you look at the country as a series, if you imagine that all of the states are little mini countries, it starts to be more interesting. Because in fact, education is mostly funded and controlled at the state and local level in the United States. So it is more fair to think of us as a as 50 different countries. And if you do that, like you said, you you find some interesting things. I mean. There's some good news. There are some states that are doing very well, holding their own internationally, particularly Massachusetts and Minnesota. You also see that in reading, American teenagers and and young younger Americans are are also holding their own compared to kids around the world. That the changes the older kids get, we do start to slip behind, particularly low income and minority kids. But our biggest weakness at every socioeconomic level is math and science, but particularly math. And so you can see that even in countries that are very white, 
very homogenous, very small. Let's take Maine, for example, which is 94% white and has a quarter of the population of Finland. The teenagers in Maine are performing at about the level of the teenagers in Portugal. So you just don't see them anywhere near, uh, particularly, again, in math. Their peers in, in Finland or Canada, for that matter, right across the border. So it is important to be precise, I think, because sometimes it can feel overwhelming. I mean, we can start to feel like, oh, God, here we go again. There's no hope. And, and that's just not the case. If we, can, if we can make the progress we've made in reading, and if other countries can make the progress that they've made in, in all subjects, then certainly we can do the same. The disparity even exists between some of these countries and places like Beverly Hills, for example, where the economy is strong and where there's a great deal of affluence. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you can you can look at poverty. Poverty matters. I mean, no, I'm not going to argue it doesn't. It's a huge deal. And, and, of course, you have to think about poverty and education and all of these things interacting. It's very important to think to hold all these ideas in your head at once. The thing you notice looking at the international data is that in some countries, poverty is more damning from an educational standpoint than in others. And right now, the United States is one of those countries. That hasn't always been true, and I don't think it always will be. But right now, poverty is um, is harder to get out of than, than it is in many countries, many developed countries around the world, a growing list. So it is true, for example, that the average 15-year-old anywhere in Canada is outperforming the average 15-year-old in Beverly Hills in math. So you can see that Canada, which has 15% child poverty, not a small amount, and a lot of immigration and is also a place distrustful of central government, has really dramatically improved how its kids are doing in education. So there's a lot of hope, and that's, I think, the main point here, is not to just feel not to just feel bad about ourselves because it's easy to get fatalistic, but, but actually to see that there's a lot of encouragement around the world and within the country, but particularly looking at how countries have improved just over the past 10 years, or even, even despite poverty and other challenges. Of course, these countries that have improved have made a really broad-based commitment to improve. Talk a little bit about that and the motivation at the very top to improve the country's educational system dramatically. I remember three or four years ago, I was interviewing Andreas Schleicher, who's kind of one of the gurus on international education outcomes. He's a physicist by trade and got very interested in the science of education and now knows probably more than anyone about uh, the variance between countries and education outcomes. And he said, I asked him about the United States, and he said, well, you know, the United States hasn't really tried uh, serious education reform. And I, I was I was appalled. I said, what are you talking about? I mean, we're tearing ourselves apart every day here over fights about charter schools and vouchers and class size and on and on and on. But relative to the rest of the world, he was right. These other countries have had much more coherent and comprehensive changes that maybe weren't as divisive for various reasons, although often they are but had more impact. And that's, that's, hard to, that's hard to accept. But again, there are some states that have done this. You know, Massachusetts and Minnesota, again, are places that have really raised their game in a more comprehensive way than other states. So there is, there is hope out there. Arguably, on a national level, Common Core is a, step, a serious step in that direction. I think it is. I'm very encouraged by the Common Core. Of course, I, I don't know where this debate's going to end. I see it kind of falling apart 
in front of my eyes from place to place. So I can't predict the future on whether the 46 states that have adopted the Common Core state standards will stick with it in a serious way. But I can't think of a high-performing education superpower country anywhere in the world that hasn't done something equivalent to the Common Core. It's just, it's a basic prerequisite that everyone has to get together, swallow their differences, and decide that all kids need to know fewer things more deeply and create some coherence and lucidity in what schools are doing around the country. That is an absolute no-brainer. It is not enough, right? I mean, you can't just do that and then, you know, sit back. And in many places, you're going to see that it's not going to work because there hasn't been enough training for teachers. There hasn't been enough time for them to plan. There's so much distrust, et cetera, et cetera. But in some places, I think it really will work. I think Kentucky is a very exciting example, a place that adopted a common core before any other state and so is kind of a way to look into the future. And when I visited Kentucky a couple months ago, the teachers I met loved the Common Core. They felt like once they got through the initial painful transition of dealing with a new set of targets for what kids should know, the clarity was incredibly refreshing. They finally had agreement on where they were headed, and they could collaborate and work towards that, and they had total creativity over how they got there. So... You know, I don't know, again, where this will end, but it's hard to make the case that we don't need to raise our game, particularly, again, in math, and the Common Core is in math and reading. And the Common Core is much more aligned with other top-performing countries in math, so we, we can say that with some certainty. One of the other things that we see in these other countries, and you write about particularly strong in Finland, but in other places as well, is the education of teachers and the regard in which teachers are held by everyone, including and especially perhaps the students. This surprised me. I had heard, uh, you know, many times about how these, these education superpower countries are much more selective in who gets to even contemplate becoming a teacher, who majors, who gets to go to school to become a teacher and majors in education. And I figured that that would be useful because having the benefit of a strong education could help you become an educator who is effective. But I'd underestimated a secondary effect of this, which is the signaling effects that it has when, when everyone knows, including the parents and the kids and the politicians, that only the top academic stars in the country become teachers, then it's much easier to make the case to pay teachers more, to give them more autonomy in the classroom, to treat it like the true profession it deserves to be, a profession that is incredibly demanding and and important. So, again, here the good news is not just what's happening now, but what would happen before. If you look back at Finland, Finland, like the United States, used to have a wide variety of education colleges of wildly varying quality and selectivity. In the United States, we have over a 1,000 different education colleges. We educate twice as many teachers as we need. In Finland, in 1968, as part of a broader reform of higher education, they shut down those, those middling education colleges and moved them all, consolidated them into the top eight elite universities in the country, which meant de facto, that to get in, you had to be performing in the top third of your high school graduating class, you know, as far as your grades or the equivalent of your SAT score. So when they did that, 
they really elevated the way the not only the way the profession was perceived, but also the way teachers were trained because, you know, they're starting from a place where they don't have to do a lot of catch-up in training teachers in, uh, academically. They can allow teachers to really go deeply into their subject um, of emphasis. And then they have a year in Finland of student teaching, which we know is where, you know, things get real. I mean, that's where <laughs> that's where teachers really learn the craft, which is dynamic and hard. And so they need to be paired with really, really great teachers who give them very direct, constant feedback in high-performing schools, which is what Finland does. And once you do that, once you go long on quality, which is what Finland did, sometimes on purpose and sometimes by accident, then everything gets a little easier. You don't have to have as many standardized tests. You don't have to have, uh, you know, long prescriptive curriculum. You don't have to have all of the kinds of constraints that really understandably drive teachers mad. And that's what Finland did. They used to have a 700-page curriculum, and it was very prescriptive. And they, in the 1980s, after they had, you know, changed the training, they cut it in half down to 300 pages. They really involved teachers in reshaping um, the equivalent of the Common Core in Finland, which they now have for 18 different subjects. And it's subjects, and it's, you know, relatively sophisticated for what kids should know at every level and there's clarity about that for teachers without without oppressively you know monitoring everything they do you make the analogy that it's very much like medical training in a way that these student teachers are like interns or residents in a teaching hospital right because they're giving you know if you're a teacher in training in finland and you have that full year of student teaching, and you go in and, you know, you've already sat down with your mentors to look at your lesson plans, to talk about what you're going to do. Then you give your class, and they sit down with you like a pit crew and give you very direct feedback, some of which is, you know, <laughs> maybe hard to take. Uh, and then you go back and try to make it better. You collaborate with other student teachers, and you watch each other. And that kind of thing is where the real learning happens, right, on the job, just like any really demanding profession. You need to get your hands dirty. You need to get in there and and try and fail and try again. Talk a little bit about the role of parents, because one of the things you talk about is that we have a lot of parents that are very committed to school. They do a lot in school. They show up. But it's not always doing the right things. Talk about that. Yeah, I think American parents get a bad rap from Americans themselves. I mean, in surveys, Americans sometimes uh, cite parents as the reason why we have sort of mediocre education outcomes. And there's not a lot of evidence that parents are not involved in education. In fact, American parents are showing up at their kids' schools more often, dramatically more than they did in, in the 1980s. And they're, they're very involved compared to parents in other countries. You know, when you go to a school in Finland or Korea, you don't see parents at the school, uh, particularly in high school. You don't see them coming to parent-teacher conferences and, you know, going to games and PTA meetings. That's not the role of parents. Parents are very involved in their kids' education, but it seems to be focused at home. You know, they, they are really working more with their kids on reading and math and learning at home as opposed to, you know, extracurricular activities at school, which this is, you know, sometimes people don't like it when I say this because people enjoy, you know, adults enjoy these 
these volunteer activities. They feel like it's it's community building, which it is. And um, that's all fair, but I think it's important to prioritize. And we all Americans work a lot of hours. We're busy. We don't have a lot of a very strong safety net. And it, as a parent of a public school child myself here in D.C., I would really appreciate more clarity around what matters most because the, the many, many, many things that my child's school asks me to do, most of them have nothing to do with learning. And there's almost no overlap between what they ask me to do and what a school in Finland would ask me to do for my uh, child. So it, it is useful to have focus, right, <laughs> whenever you're when you're busy and you have limited time and resources. And what we know in every time zone, the thing that helps helps you more than anything else to raise a child who becomes a critical thinker, who enjoys reading, is to read to your child, particularly when they're young, obviously, but also to talk to them about your what you're reading, ask them questions. And as they get older, to talk to them about their day, to talk to them about the news of the world. Those kinds of back-and-forth conversations just, you know, statistically speaking, there's robust evidence that that is incredibly impactful for kids, for helping kids learn to think for themselves. And in fact, in one study of 13 different regions around the world, the more time parents spent doing that, those kinds of things, the better their children were at reading, even after controlling for almost everything else. Interestingly, the more time parents spent around the world in doing PTA, extracurricular activities, volunteering in school, the worse their child did by the time they were 15 <laughs> in reading. And it's hard to say what's causing what, of course, but I did find that to be a powerful, a powerful statistic that I try to keep in my own head as I, as I figure out what to do and not do with my own child's school. One of the other aspects of this, and it's a corollary to this in some respects because it affects parents and teachers as well, is this sense of not wanting kids in American schools and in American families to feel uncomfortable in the learning process. That's not necessarily the kid, the way they look at it in some of these other countries. Yeah, this is really interesting. And there's a lot of exciting research and conversation about this happening even in the U.S. about the importance of kid learning non-cognitive skills, things like conscientiousness, persistence, self-control, all those things are more valuable in many ways to your life chances than IQ. But you can learn those through academics, and that's what you see in these countries. I mean, here what I have people say to me often is, well, you know, sports are really important because that's how I learned uh, grit and persistence and self-discipline. Well, that's great, and I'm glad that that's happening, but that should be happening at school, too, and that's what's happening in places like Korea and Finland. Let me give you an example. So Tom, who went from Pennsylvania to Poland, and I chose Poland because they have a high child poverty rate but have dramatically improved in education over the past 10 years. When he got there on his first day of school, the teacher was announcing the students' most recent test grades, which happens all over the world including in places with not great education <laughs> systems. Um, and he, you know, number five was like an A, and, you know, one was like an F or D. And the teacher read off all of the scores, and he kept waiting for someone to get a five, and no one got a five. And all year long, Tom waited for someone to get a five. <laughs> no one ever got a five. And he would try to imagine what would happen in his school back in Pennsylvania if no one ever got the highest score. And what was interesting is that 
you know, the kids in Poland just, you know, after they heard their grades, they picked up their backpacks and went to the next class. You know, they weren't devastated. Um, but it's important if you're going to be, if you're going to demand more of kids and not, you know, reward them constantly, it's important to couple that with a mindset that says, look, you can do better in math or reading or whatever it is if you work harder and get help, that it's not a function of innate talent. And that is something also that some countries do better than others is sort of from a very young age instilling in kids the idea that your brain is a muscle, something Carol Dweck has done a lot of great research on in the United States. And that mindset is really important. And the last thing I'll say about this is that um, the United States ranks number one in the world for the percentage of 15-year-olds who say they routinely get high grades in math. But then we rank 26th in the world on the very same kids, by the way, on a test of critical thinking in math. So we're really in... in in very uh, in trying to protect our kids from you know harsh, painful experiences, we're, we're setting them up for disappointment. Once they get to college, they find out maybe that they're not as prepared in math as they thought they would be. The very process of reading the grades aloud in the classroom is something that's hard to imagine in an American school setting. It is, and it's interesting because we are pretty. By the time kids are in high school, we're much more honest with them in sports, you know. I mean, I sometimes feel like if we could just transfer the same, like, rituals, <laughs> mindsets, practices that we use in sports towards academics, we would, we would be hugely better off because, you know, parents and teachers and coaches can be pretty, pretty direct with kids in sports, right? I mean, there's no kind of sugarcoating it past a certain age. And, the assumption is you need to work hard. You need to come to preseason. You need to do wait, the weight room after hours. You need to watch game tape, and, and then you'll get better. And there's not always that assumption with math. I mean, can you imagine if we called kids back to school two weeks early in the summer so they could bone up on their math skills? Um, you know, that's inconceivable. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's worth just kind of thinking about the the kind of subconscious decisions we make and messages we send to kids about what's really important and and trying not to set them up for disappointment when they turn 18. One of the other things that I think that will surprise people is that technology is not a big part of the equation in any of these countries, in any of these schools. It's not about laptops and whiteboards and iPads, etc., this was a big surprise for me. I mean, you know, the kids noticed it right away that when they went to these schools, they saw far less technology in the classroom. And I thought maybe that was just chance. So I did survey hundreds of exchange students to try to get a sense of whether there were any patterns. And a majority of them agreed that they saw more technology in their U.S. classrooms. And American kids also said that who'd gone abroad, that they saw more technology in their U.S. classrooms. There's not a lot of great data about uh, ed, ed tech investments around the world, but the research that has been done within the U.S. consistently shows that, you know, just investing in this technology does not necessarily lead to learning, that the devil is always in the details. And, you know, I have been to some some really struggling schools all over this country, and there's a, you know, digital whiteboard up on the classroom wall in many, many, many schools, uh, in many, many classrooms. <laughs> But I don't think it's really making the difference. I mean, I think uh, it's being used just like a white, a regular, you know, $20 whiteboard. Um, so 
we have to be real cautious because in this country we tend to be um, we tend to be very excited about about stuff about gear and we're not the only ones but um, we also tend to have very convincing uh, for-profit companies coming into our schools and and we just have to make sure there's evidence right that these investments are leading to learn to learning before we get carried away and you know Los Angeles decided to buy iPads for all of its public school kids and this is you know I was just heartbroken to see that headline and I hoped that I was wrong and that things would work out and that this truly would this truly would be worth it. But so far, it's been kind of a debacle from, from what I understand in trying to roll it out and kids, you know, putting up, there's a lot of, you know, in American schools, we spend a lot of time and money putting up firewalls so that kids can't uh, get on sites that might be distracting or dangerous. And then we render the device kind of useless. And then kids spend a lot of energy hacking the devices and on and on it goes. So <laughs> I don't know. It's just worth being wary of the seduction of shiny objects. Amanda Ripley, the book is The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. Amanda, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 